Welcome to afternoon tea. <laughs> I like that sound bite. But hey, everyone, welcome to I think the third episode of Afternoon Tea. Um, our kind of Asian American roundtable fireside chat, um, however you want to call it, casual conversation series. Uh, today we have a whole host of new and returning guests, and so we'll just do really quick intros. Uh, we could just do name, pronouns, and then. What's something better than like a fun fact? How about what's the best Favorite meal? Animal. Pick an animal. Oh no! Wait, what's the best meal? Food is better. Let's go with food. <laughs> what's the best animal you've eaten? <laughs> we combine both <laughs> questions. Uh, yeah, what's the best animal you've eaten recently? Unless you're a vegetarian or vegan, in which case, like, what's the best plant you've eaten recently? Um, I, I'm just. <laughs> Um, I could go first. Uh, my name is Alex. Um, he, his. Um, and then what's the best animal I've eaten recently? Um, I had clams actually recently that were really good. But the thing is like, I have gout. And so like when I eat clams, my uh, legs stiffen up and I have a limp, but, (laughs) but I, I still do it. Um, and yeah, like, gout's been something that I've had for... And I'm, like, really young to have gout, so that's pretty messed up. <laughs> but there's my intro. How, like, how quickly after clam consumption does that happen for you? Um, Pretty quickly. Usually, like, a, a day after or so. Um, that's also why I can't drink too much beer. Because the day after, I'm just like, I have a limp. <laughs> or like my, my thumb, or like wherever around my joints, they just stiffen up or they get inflamed. Man. I'm just like blown away by the fact that you have gout. This is new information that I like didn't think was possible, Alex. Wow. <laughs> we, 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 <laughs> we, our intros are intense. Indeed. Well, I'll go next then. Um, Hi, my name's Chris. My pronouns are she, her. And the best animal I've eaten recently was uh, catfish. My roommate actually just cooked some, and it's delicious. And I'm definitely going to eat some more after this podcast. And I can eat as many clams and other seafood as I want because I don't have gout. Yeah. Damn. Rub it in, why don't you? (laughs) How was the catfish cooked? She wrapped it, um, so it's kind of like baked steamed sort of, so she wrapped it in foil and there's like a sauce um, that she made that the catfish is like sitting in, plus there's a bunch of herbs on it, and then she closed up the foil and baked it. I like it. Like like Asian style baked steamed fish. That sounds really nice. Okay, I'll go next. Um, The best animal I've had in the recent past is probably oh man um when i was in uh uh when i was still living in europe i i visited my friend in beirut over one break and uh we went to this armenian restaurant there and i had baby sparrows uh they were like they were like baby sparrows that had been like sort of roasted in this cherry sauce and they looked like really, really small rotisserie chickens. 
and they had left the bones in. So I ate each of the little baby sparrows and like they crunched in my mouth and I felt so bad that they had lost their lives so that I could be experiencing that. But they were also really tasty. It was like you had fun sized rotisserie chicken. <laughs> exactly. Fun sized. Wait, but does it like, taste like, like chicken rotisserie though? chicken kids meal. Yeah, there should have been a toy with it. I should have asked. Those are, I mean, those are probably the most interesting animal that I've had recently. Um, you get a chance. Do try them. Baby sparrows. Where the hell would I even find a baby sparrow? Like, do I have to climb a tree and look in a nest and do some bird napping? Like, it seems like a lot of work. Chicago is a a very rich in biodiversity, so I'm sure it will not be terribly difficult. You could wrap them in aluminum foil as well. I wonder if there are, like, baby sparrow farms that they just, like, supply these sparrows. That's a really good question, actually. (laughs) (laughs) The... The Sparrow Industrial Complex. So like this, you know, <laughs> it's like Armenia's chief export, actually, is baby sparrows. Oh, God. But do you think they have, like, sparrow battery farming? Like, how we have chicken battery farming here? Or, like, you know, are they free-range sparrows and they, you know, farmers, or I guess they wouldn't be farmers, they'd be hunters? Um, hmm. That's a good question. You know, like the meal was inexpensive enough that I don't think these were like hunted sparrows. Like I think they must have been farmed somehow. You were like it tasted like captivity. <laughs> well, it's like, you know, if if the supply is low enough that they're like hunting them, then I would have expected to have paid like quite a lot for that meal, but like it was, you know, it was average price of going out and getting any other bird dish in a restaurant. So I'm assuming that somewhere in Armenia there are sparrow farms. It's six minutes in and we've already discussed the sparrow farming economy of Armenia. Wow, I love this. <laughs> All right, should I do my intro? Um, I'm Tim. I, pronouns are he and him. I've, my best animal that I've eaten... Oh, so last weekend, yeah... I had this okay, so I had this fried chicken sandwich, but like the the novelty or the the gimmick on this one was that it was sandwiched in between. Um, if you're familiar with like pineapple buns, uh, they're like I don't even know how to describe them, but just uh, they're just buns with like crispy sweet topping on on top, and so it's a very strange experience because. It was like something that you would eat like as a dessert or as like something you would eat um, that's kind of sweet. But then it's like there's this savory fried chicken in the middle and I didn't know how to feel about it. Man, where did you acquire such a dish? Uh, I was in LA last weekend, so we went to... Uh, oh, what is it called? Uh, it's like an offshoot of this... Uh, food market in New York called, oh, I'm totally blinking right now. Uh, it's all good. Anyway. They didn't sponsor us, so yeah, we don't so, have to say the name of their restaurant. Unknown. Somewhere in L- LA. 
that to me is like the best representation possible of LA. Like fried chicken in between two pineapple buns. It's called Smorgasburg. The 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 market is called Smorgasburg. That to me is quintessential LA. <laughs> <laughs> um, awesome. Uh, let's uh, yeah, let's start with a silly question. Does anybody want to volunteer their question? Yes. Okay. Are y'all ready? I think so. Okay. So, if you had to live in a TV show, let's like an existing TV show, not one that you've made up, for a month, what TV show would you live in and why? And what character would you play? That's a great question. All right. I think I have an answer. Um, I don't know if any of you have seen Kim's Convenience, but... Uh, oh my God, yes. Love it. Go on. Yeah, so Kim's Convenience would totally be my show. And so, like, it's like this... Uh, uh, about this kind of Canadian-Asian or Canadian-Korean um, family who owns a, a convenience store. And then... Um, I don't know what like resonates so much to me about that show is just how um I don't know it just seems like everybody's just so caring and intentional about things and like the thing about the show is that there are conflicts but then like you kind of you work through whatever the tension is like whether it's like a miscommunication or whether it was someone being ignorant or or whatnot and then you kind of like get through that to find that kind of like underlying humanity that kind of unites all of us and so there there is kind of this like idealistic kind of aspect to it but like for me it was just like this is kind of that you know asian diaspora experience that i've always been craving where it's like yeah there are kind of challenges being a minority um in a white society but like there's all these like interesting nuances too of like finding unique communities from there or like bonding over shared experiences or like um even like awkwardness communicating with the, like your your parents and whatnot and you know so many of those things just resonate so strongly with me that um i just kind of want to like be in that community um as for who i would want to be um, and you can be like an existing character or you can make up your own character but you have to tell us how you would interact with the other cast right hmm I mean, there is this kind of, like, wild card character. His name's Kimchi. <laughs> and he's just, like... He's just, like... Um, he's friends... He's, like, best friends and roommates with... Uh, the brother of... Um, like, the show follows the whole family. And so, like, one part of the family, the brother, he's friends with Kimchi. And so, like, Kimchi's kind of a loose cannon type... He likes to party. He's kind of fratty, but he has like a soft heart. And so I'm like, he just seems like a very fun character to embody. And he has like a lot of like fun, weird experiences that I think it would be interesting to live through. I feel like kimchi is so different from how you present as a person that I'm really glad and like excited that you picked him of all of people in Kim's convenience to be. Well, exactly, because 
I was going to say, it's not, it's not often I get to go into a TV show and embody some other character. And so he probably is the furthest away from like how uh, I am. And so I'm like, that's exciting to me. I, mean, I don't know what you're talking about, Chris. I've always thought of Alex as a massive frat star. <laughs> you're right. You're right. Alex is totally like crushing beer cans on his head. You know, <laughs> this very every Friday night. As we speak. As we speak, actually, the the best animal that he ate, you know, recently was like something really fratty, like a whole hog, like a whole one, just on <laughs> his own, an entire rotisserie pig. <laughs> Who wants to go next? Okay, I'll, I'll go next. Um, the yeah, the show I'd love to be in. Is has anyone seen Peep Show? I've seen episodes. You're gonna need to give me a plot synopsis. Okay. Um, essentially, it's this like kind of cult, like British comedy show. I think it was at least it's it it had had a long run, but I believe it started in the early 2000s. And essentially, um, it's a sitcom that's filmed totally point of view from these two main characters that are both just like really maladjusted 20 something British guys living in an apartment together in London. Um, one is like, uh, kind of like an office drone who totally lacks social skills. And the other is a failed musician. And they have this really strange, like set of like acquaintances and friends and they're both just like really misanthropic and the writing is brilliant and i would love to just like spend a day like literally like behind the eyes of one of the two characters like experiencing like their weird the weird world that they live in i think that would be so great i mean if you wanted to just hang out with like awkward nerds you could have just been an engineering major like me and tim I was for a year. It was indeed very awkward. Then I left and joined English, but I was like, oh, like I'm still awkward. That doesn't change. Other things can change, but not that. Right. And on that note, I guess we're ready to tackle a Sears question now. <laughs> Does anybody have any Sears questions they want to follow? Actually, wait, no, we didn't. Chris, do you have a, do you have a show in mind? Yeah, actually, Sorry. I do. <laughs> okay, so I would hmm, wait. Let me think. I was gonna say Game of Thrones, what? but then I was like, I'm gonna die within like a day. But it'll be a good day. However, and a good death. Yes, it would be epic, right? So I was like, you know what? Since I get to be whatever character, let's pick one that's still alive. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I love, like, fantasy as a genre in general, fantasy sci-fi. And I I love how complex the Game of Thrones, like, story arcs are for each character and, like, how they grow within the series. So that's part of the reason why like, I love Sansa's arc so much. So I feel like she comes so far throughout the series. Um, 
Oh, for those of you who don't know what Game of Thrones is, Game of Thrones is a um, fantasy genre epic series that is uh, on HBO and is known for uh, its gory battle scenes and kind of gratuitous nudity. Um, But essentially, it's about all of these warring um, dynasties who are trying to fight for the the throne to rule the whole kingdom, which is like loosely based on the geography of England and like Western Europe. Um, and there's like dragons and uh, white walkers. And that's not like a metaphor for white supremacy. They really are called that. Um, and yeah, you should watch it for all of the political intrigue. I think it actually reflects a lot of things that are happening in the world right now, except obviously through a magic realism kind of lens. But anyways, if I had to be in Game of Thrones for a month, I think I would like to be um, I, I think I'd like to be Jon Snow. Honestly. That's cool. Because, like, he as a person and how he presents himself is so different from me. Um, He's very quiet, very reserved, very, like, reluctant to kind of take, you know, be in the limelight. But he feels that it's his duty to do so. And he has a very strong moral compass. Not to say that I have a terrible moral compass, but I think the difference between Jon Snow and the rest of the characters in... Game of Thrones is he's not willing to play any sort of diplomacy or political game. Uh, even though it might be necessary for him, he just knows that he has to do the right thing. And then I also think it's really interesting that he he's like the, one of the only people in the entire series who realizes that the real threat uh, to all of them is not the political games that they're playing and who has the biggest army, but it's actually this giant army of like the undead that is descending upon everyone from the Northern part of the country, the white walkers um, who are about to like bring a never ending winter to the rest of the, the land. And, and and that isn't an analogy for white supremacy. It's, it's an analogy for white supremacy, for the alt-right, for everyone ignoring climate change. And Jon Snow is out here and he's like, yo, like, we need to fight these people. And all I have is this big fur coat and this sword that's, like, enchanted. Uh, you need to help me. And everyone's like, oh, Jon, excuse me, we're squabbling over the throne. And he's like, no, like... The zombies are about to get us, and now they have an ice dragon, and we're fucked. And they still don't want to listen to him. He's basically um, the fantasy equivalent of Al Gore. Yes. And he also, like, fights really well, and, like, I'm not athletic, and I've never learned how to fight in my life, and I think it would be really cool to, like, run around and, like, fuck shit up with my sword. And also, like, obviously Jon Snow was a man, and I think it would be interesting to be a man for a month and experience that privilege. Yeah. I think it would be fun. Also, he sleeps with Daenerys and Daenerys is really hot. 
Yeah. But they're related, aren't they? Look, okay, also in the world of Game of Thrones, you know, it seems like blood ties and family relationships are just, like, loosely observed. So it's it's a different time over there. I think when you have an army of zombies about to come get you and also dragons, you're like, eh, I can sleep with my cousin. It's fine. Or I think she's his aunt, actually. But yeah, it's weird. All the quality of life changes. Like, are there bathrooms? Like, what do you do when you need to like poop and like shower? Are there showers? That's the thing. Like, there are baths for sure, but where where Jon Snow is, there aren't. But also, I feel like in whatever world they're in, because he's a dude, it's like fine if he's just kind of like out here smelly and shit. Because it's like, hey. Like, I'm a fierce warrior. I can do what I want. But then everyone else is smelly, too. I mean, like, his first love is a wildling. And, like, wildlings definitely don't take showers. And the two of them just, like, do whatever and don't seem to care. So maybe when you're both, like, really dirty, it doesn't matter. Honestly, if everyone's dirty, I guess it's just liberating to not have to care about it anymore. Oh yeah, like, uh, what's it called? Olfactory desensitization or whatever? Just, like, get used to it. Yeah, like, honestly, that's probably what it's like. It's part of the reason, like, I would want to be Jon Snow versus, like, the other characters who get to live in, like, a nice place. Because that's so far from me. Like, I would have a problem being in the Night's Watch and, like, not showering for, like, weeks on end. And be like, hey, before we go out on this, like, ranging mission, can I, like, take a quick shower? Is that cool? Damn, I feel like I should have, like, changed my answer to something very different, to Like, oh, I want to be, I don't know, in the blue planet. Like, even though that's the same world as our world, I could be, like, a manta ray like or something. a whale? <laughs> or a whale, yeah. <laughs> Dare I say it? Alex, would you want to be a baby shark? This is when I insert a clip. There you go. You better edit this and insert, like, the chorus of Baby Shark. <laughs> but, like, I don't know if that's, like, a copyright thing, so maybe I'll just record my voice singing. I'll do a cover of Baby Shark and then insert it in here. Please do it. If you don't Wonderful. do it. Please do it, and that will be the draw. I'll be like, hey, listen to our third episode, because Alex sings Baby Shark in it. <sighs> the, things, the things we do for the podcast. Um... On that note, I think we could move on. Um, I can't believe... So, hold on. What is Baby Shark? Because we explain Game of Thrones, we don't explain Baby Shark. <laughs> skewed. Well, well, Baby Shark is... Everybody knows Baby Shark. Um, I mean, it's baby a meme. Baby Shark, do, 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 do. Baby Shark, do, 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 do. There you go. It's a jingle slash kid song that, like took off as a meme for some reason i'm just gonna have that play throughout the entire episode just in the background alexa play baby shark (laughs) but yeah um anybody want to share a serious question i guess 
Uh, I can go. So this has been on my mind for a little bit after reflecting on 2018. So like in terms of like for Asian Americans, 2018 was pretty big for representation. I.e. like Asian August were like what Crazy Rich Asians searching. Um, all those films just released all at once. Um, but my question is, on one hand, culture and media do have a profound effect on society, but can that actually save us is my question. So you're like, will media representation save us? Or in a sense, is that the thing that will bring about the, uh, the most benefit or are there other, other things, other possibilities for activism that, um, there could be more focus on rather than just, um, fighting for more representation? Hmm. Like, do you want to be a little bit more specific with your question? Because I feel like there are so many different avenues where we need activism that is going on that don't necessarily get as much media time as, like, media representation. So it's like, I don't know, I hear your question, and my very first response is like, yeah, of course. Like, (laughs) Hollywood could, like, crumble right now, and we'd still have to fight for all these other things that we're currently fighting for, like immigration reform, like like the school to prison pipeline, like climate change, like all of these things affect Asian Americans too. Yeah, I'm more speaking from like noticing, um, for instance, uh, I'm at a university right now and a lot of stuff, a lot of conversation uh, revolves around media and media representation for Asian Americans. And same goes for when I look at uh, things on like, um, on subtle Asian traits as well on Facebook, like there's all sorts of, um, you know, those kinds of conversations going on. And there's little focus on anything else. If there were any focus on some activism type uh, content, um. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but honestly, for me, the, the buck pretty much stops with Crazy Rich Asians. I think that all the objectives that I really cared about were met, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty happy camper. Activism's pretty much done for me. <laughs> yeah, John Cho is going to save me. Um, I think, um, I think it is a little more complicated than it might appear um i think it's like at least i think it's like pretty obvious that um you know representation alone won't do much um like if the end goal is to just replace the people in power with like people in power that look like us that you know obviously does not systemically change anything um but it's also clear that hey like um, the reason media gets so much attention, the reason Hollywood gets so much attention is because like it is an industry or a machine specifically designed to reach a large audience. And so um, I do kind of want to believe that 
there is potential there or there's potential to harness that kind of energy and that enthusiasm in a positive way. Um, and like, I also want to acknowledge like, yeah, like growing up, like I watched a bunch of like uh, YouTubers and like some of them were problematic, some of them weren't problematic, but a lot of them did help shape kind of my conception of what it means to be Asian American. And so um, I also don't want to discount that. And so I feel like the only way to look at it is like representation's honestly fine. I don't think it does that much, but if there's a way to harness that enthusiasm that people get or the or that connection that people feel and connect that to something larger, connect that to to something more systemic, um, I think there is still this kind of a lot of potential energy there. Mm-hmm. And I think like with representation, it's like, what do you do with that representation, right? Now that there is this visibility, people we can see that like, so there's a Hollywood effect in the sense that like more, um, more projects with Asian actors are probably going to be greenlit because of crazy rich Asians and searching. But then you have to like, look a little bit deeper. Like, why are they greenlighting those things? Is it because they finally realize and, like, oh, Asian people are multifaceted and, oh, you can act and, oh, you can carry a movie? Or is it that the box office numbers were big enough so Hollywood is like, oh, we can make money off of this viewership. So, yeah, let's make Asian films with Asian leads, right? And that goes back to, like, so we achieved this really great thing with representation, but also it was like we achieved it because of a capitalist like world that we live in. Like, Oh yeah, they're paying attention because we made hella money. That's what it is. It's like the dollars are speaking more so than like, like in terms of like Hollywood Um, versus of course, like it was really emotional for so many people, including me to watch crazy rich Asians and be like, wow, I've never gone through a whole movie that is entirely in a language that I understand um, with actors that I know about and like the white characters are like the token ones. And it's like, wow, this is like really emotional for me to see. But at the same time, it's like if these actors and actresses that are in crazy rich Asians or the production crew behind it, don't use the platform that they have to open doors and tell different kinds of stories about our people And if it's just about, like, who can we get on a screen and how many dollars can we make, then, like, then what was the point of all the work that was done to get to this point? I think I agree with both of the points you made, Chris, like the earlier one and then your argument just now. Um, Like, it is, like, I, I I think Alex is right that, like, representation is possibly, like, this sort of, stepping stone that maybe like larger social change can be sort of like brought out of but then yeah it is really strange to me uh that like weirdly like it's it's like that is people's hill to die on like will people in movies look like me or not as opposed to like can i bring my family members over or are they going to be denied visas or like is my right to stay in this country going to be compromised or things like that uh is strange to me um and then i think even even within this sort of 
Like I don't know, very nebulous term of representing. Sorry, after you. I forget which um, actor said this and, and like what movie it was, but essentially, he he played a character in a in a big movie, and he played the character with his like Latinx accent. He didn't change his accent to sound like more American. And he says that he brought his dad to see the movie that he was in. And his dad got so emotional seeing somebody carry a film who sounds like him. Right. Like the, Mm -hmm. you know, when people are like, Oh my God, I feel so seen like as just like a throwaway comment, but really like it is so profound to see yourself represented especially when everything around you doesn't look like you. And we have, we, as people of color, right, not just Asians, but black folks, Latinx folks, Arab folks, et cetera, like we've internalized that like we're not supposed to be seen and we've adapted ourselves and changed ourselves in order to fit like what is essentially a white world. So when you get to be in a space where you don't expect to see yourself and then you are like, this mirror is held up to you, it's really emotional. And like, as a poet, I know how important like storytelling is and how that can like provoke a conversation. So I think representation is so unbelievably important, especially if like, you know, you're, you're that one Asian kid in your, in your public high school in like the middle of nowhere, Ohio, right. Where the only other Asian is like your sister. Like, can you imagine for that kid seeing crazy rich Asians and how they must feel looking at that? Like that's big, but it's not the end, right? It's like, this is, this does something for like your heart and your emotions. But then also it's like, if, if you've watched that and you felt the type of way, how do we like activate you so that you'll help us sign common sense immigration reform into law? Right. Or like, how can we take that excitement that you feel about finally being seen or represented and like get you to get you to see like, hey, you have power and like you can you and like, you know, provoke like civic engagement within our communities and get people to like register to vote and understand municipal level politics and things like that. I think that's what's like the hard part. Like you were saying, Alex, like, what do you do? with all that excitement. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, was it Diego Luna that had that experience with, um, yes, it was Diego Star, Luna. Star Wars movie that he was in. Yes, was yes, a, yes, exactly. Story. Yeah. He talked of, if you look it up, he talked about his dad and I was, I remember reading that story and like wanting to cry. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, I, I totally agree with, your point, honestly. Um, I guess for me, like, the issue has more nuance to it as well. Like, I think, like, I think when we're using a constructed we to talk about Asians, like, specifically related to Crazy Rich Asians, for example, if we're talking about representation, like, I am an Asian American, and obviously, like, watching that movie, like, I'm glad that if you are Chinese American, like, you felt like that movie was very true to your experience. But then if you, for example, are Indian American, then there's like one scene in the movie where two 
uh, Indian Singaporeans appear briefly in a park and are just sort of like treated like these cartoonish villains before being passed over after 10 seconds. Um, and I think like uh, sort of like analyses of representation need to be very honest about how we're given as much as we're not given, I guess, or I don't know. I guess I'm thinking about it no, also in the exactly. terms of like, uh, like, do we want to be asking this from Hollywood, for example, which is essentially mm. an uber capitalist white supremacist power structure mm -hmm. in American society? Like, is that really like, like, I think, for example, if we're talking about Diego Luna story, like that story has a very real emotional weight, but then do I really want to be happy that Hollywood gave Diego Luna's father that experience when yeah. it's, it sort of reminds me of critiques of charity, like, mm -hmm. like charity results in very real material gains for people, but at the same time, it's part of an essentially exploitative economic structure. And mm -hmm. I suppose in a in so, somewhat similar sense, like, thanking Hollywood for Asian representation is sort of similar because it's only ever going to be token or only ever going to be based on how much profit can be generated uh, without fundamentally destroying oppressive power structures. So I don't know. It's, it's hard for me at, at the same time that I want to celebrate gains. It, you know, it's, it's hard for me to like, be happy and at the same time not want us to kind of like raise our standards or like or like want I don't know I'm sorry this is like a really convoluted point to make um, no, it's like uh, it's like trickle down social justice right it's yep. uh, you start from the yeah it's like you start from the top and then just hope that um, you'll you'll get something uh, and so the reason why I asked this question was I agree with all your points is that it, my fear is that someone will watch cr something like Crazy Rich Asians and be like all right the work is done we're we're good here we've been we've been liberated but that's in my opinion not the case at all um there's still quite a lot of r work to do as you've mentioned Chris yeah, and I think like what Ashish was saying is you know we're so happy about something that like inherently is also something that like we're kind of trying to fight against or dismantle. And I think like, obviously the four of us, we all know like this, like this is great, but this ain't it Hollywood. But you know, if we think about like subtle Asian traits is a good kind of little microscope of the Asian community at large. Right. Or like even just other folks that I know that aren't necessarily like, super activists like we are you know they're crazy rich asians happened and they were just happy with it and like like i, I was happy about it too because i was like yeah this is good this is a good step but i wasn't like oh my god happy and like okay our work is done but i think there are there are people out there who exist who are like yeah this is dope like the same kind of people who when Obama was elected, they were like, okay, we have a black president now, like racism is over. But it's like, no, actually, it's still going on. And 
I know we can't answer this in this podcast, but maybe like a question for us to think about and for whoever's listening to think about is like, once somebody has started to, to like awaken to a consciousness of like, Hey, there's something wrong with what's going on in the world. Like, and then gets excited about something like crazy rich Asians. How do you then get that person to go like a step beyond and care about um, other things that are going on in our community. I think that's going to be an issue for like basically forever. Yep. That's what, that's why organizers are so tired all the time. Shout out to all my friends who do community work and political organizing across the U S. Cool. Do we want to move on to maybe a silly question now? <laughs> on that note, I'm trying. To, I'm trying to balance this. <laughs> um, what's your favorite boba flavor? <laughs> or like what's? <laughs> yeah, um, I can. I can go. Um, so my silly question or like not serious question is basically like okay if you had to choose if if you could only see black and white and like gradients of gray so like your world is black and white but you can choose one color to have in addition to that what would that be that's not a silly question that's a really profound question yeah, that's actually super profound. <laughs> that's that's my, my version of silliness. Yeah, so basically I'm just wondering, yeah, if you you wake up one day and everything's gray or like shades of gray, but you can like carry one color over, um, what would that be? Like, would you choose something like red where I think there's a lot of like very practical applications because it's like a common color for like warning signs or whatnot? Or would you choose something like green because there's something pleasant about you know still being able to see nature or whatnot um like what would be that one color that you would choose i guess we could just stick to like you know the main colors <laughs> like we don't have to dig into like magenta or whatnot um unless you really want to so so to clarify in this world where you can bring a color you you don't mean like oh if the whole world was black and white and i chose to like also see blue that like certain things would be blue that aren't normally blue like it would you're talking about like right so things that are blue would be blue and then everything else is still gray it's not it's not like the whole world okay, becomes okay. this one color okay because like i was excited i was like oh like <laughs> let me do like a golden yellow right. because like that's beautiful <laughs> Now I'm like, well, shit, like I'm thinking about the things that exist that are in different colors and I'm like stumped a little bit. Uh, the laser that I use at work is green, so I'll probably choose green. But also, uh, I think I read somewhere on the Internet that like looking at the color green also is a calming effect on the mind. So if I could see green, that'd be great. What if you get a different job a year later and the laser is blue and you're like disqualified? Oh, I was going to say that feeling when you just casually bring up that you work with lasers. 
just that uh just casually humble brag so if colors are made up of other colors if you picked a primary color could you see all the other colors that are made up by that color Nah. <laughs> Damn. It does... I see you looking for a loophole, and <laughs> I appreciate you. <laughs> nope. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think I would pick, I would pick like a yellow, yellow orangish because, I think you know if I'm I'm just visualizing like a grayscale world, but then at the same time being able to see sunlight, I think that would be really beautiful. You took mine. Thanks. <laughs> I apologize. I actually don't know what color to choose now. <laughs> it's like I either choose sunlight or grass and nature. This is not a silly question at all. <laughs> this is awful. What have I created? This is actually a quite serious question, Alex. Yeah, Alex is like, you're stressing yourself out now with your own question. I'm freaking out here. Help me out. What color do I choose? Okay, okay. Okay, okay, wait, wait. I have one, I have one. So, I'm assuming that I'm going to inhabit a place um, that's like an island of some sort. And so, I would really like to have like a, be able to see like the the blue-green color of the ocean. That would be cool. If, like, I could still, like, everything was gray, but then you could still see, like, the way that, like, water sparkles in, like, the sunlight. Yeah. That would be nice. I'd actually really like to see a movie with this effect. Yeah, that would be really cool. Um, You mean, like, that one digital camera, like, from a few years ago that had that one setting where you could pick a color and then everything else would be desaturated except that? True. That was a cool effect. This is news to me. Uh, oh, did anyone ever read The Giver? Yeah, I read The Giver. This question reminds me of how, like, you know, all the characters in that world see black and white, and then Jonas, like, the first color he starts to see is red. Like, I think there's a passage where him and his friend are throwing an apple at each other, and then, like, in a split second, that he sees the red of the apple. That's a great transition, because my, my answer was going to be red, actually. Um, and I think it's because there's just... Red is just such a bold color to me um, that I kind of just like feel like it's kind of essential to my life. And whether it's like a warning sign or an alert sign or something, I think it's just like there's something about it that stands out for me more than like most colors. Um, and I'm also thinking about, um, like I'm Taiwanese and so like a lot of like Chinese culture stuff, red is associated with like wealth and like prosperity. And so like, whether it's like red envelopes or new year's fireworks, celebrations, banners, um, like it's always red. And so, um, yeah, I might choose red. In in this world... Are, do do other people also see things in grayscale? Damn. <laughs> I was not ready for this. I'm not ready for the color cinematic universe. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, would things still be red even if, like, they couldn't see red? I, I, was, I was just gonna go case-by-case basis. I don't think you dictate what, like... 
Yeah, I don't know. That that is interesting. <laughs> so, like Alex, if you've chosen to see red and I've chosen to see blue, like, right? Do you hold something up and you'd be like, "Hey, what color is this?" And I'd be like, but, "It's gray." But, and you'd be like, "No, it's red." And I'd be like, "No, shut the fuck who, up, Alex. Who, it's gray." Who's to say it's not already like that? Because <laughs> our conception of color is just, at least for the most part, just based on what we think the perception of it is. Like, I don't know what your what your That's actually yeah, I mean like colorblindness is a thing. One of my really good friends is colorblind and he like doesn't know what colors are in the same way that like I understand colors to be. So sometimes he'll be like, Hey, this is this color, right? And I'll be like, Yeah, it is. And it's because he like I don't know what it looks like for him, but it doesn't look like red doesn't look like red to him. He's like red, green, colorblind. And that's also why most of his wardrobe is like very monochromatic because he, I guess him and his brother like know what is like in, in whatever they can see of colors, they know what is like gray, black, white, ish versus like brightly colored things and they know that the best the best way to go with clothing is to go with the things they know are like more monochromatic because they're not going to clash because then they could make the mistake of buying something they think is one color and then they come home and they have like you know a lemon yellow shirt and like neon orange pants that's a look I mean it is a look but maybe it's not a look that everybody wants you no know? of course this actually reminds me of i mean the fact that colorblind or not like humans generally can only see a very slim selection of all the available wavelengths of light in the universe so like realistically any of us even if we have quote-unquote perfect vision what we're looking at is not actually a realistic representation of the universe as it exists in front of us but you know that's kind of a moot point because it's like what's quote-unquote realistic but anyways that was a fun silly this question right <laughs> i'm silly and fun right <laughs> um yes yeah alex is just a barrel of laughs you know <laughs> thank you um yeah, so we're actually running kind of long. So how about, Ashish, I don't think you had a chance to share a question. Let's just do one more question. Um, and then, yeah, you could share either your silly or serious one. Why don't you make it actually fun? Okay, well, this is a, um, a mix of both, I suppose. Um, I thought the question was fun. <laughs> it was fun. It was great. It was good. It was, you know, a conversation starter. Um I think it was probably the most stress-inducing of all the ones, but it was good. <laughs> anyway. That's my life. So this question, so I, I, I went back to India um, this past winter break-esque time, and uh, I was just curious what, what everyone's thoughts are as a diaspora kid on like what, what going back to your like mother country or mother countries is like for you and how you feel in it now that like perhaps you've assimilated to a certain degree um 
like what feelings does it bring up and Oof. like how are your interactions with like people who have stayed in that country uh, what are they like Ashish that, oh, that's, a silly, that's a silly question, question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe maybe this will be a two hour podcast so that's very general I can I can just share really quickly. Um, so when I I first went back to Taiwan when I was like one years old, but you know I didn't have developed thoughts back then. And so when I went back when I was around ten, um, I think it was like a very conflicted thing because when I went back, um, it was obviously all new to me, but at the same time it was so familiar because. It was a lot of the things that my parents would describe to me as they were growing up. I would meet family members that would be, you know, kind to me in ways that you know only family would. Things like that, and so um, it. W- I just started to feel nostalgic about something that never actually happened to me, and so that really kind of sums up just how I feel overall. I think for me there was like a lot of conflicted feelings because. Um, on one hand, I was like, oh, it's almost like I could automatically fit in because I could just walk around and, like, um, for me, you know, I looked Asian and so, like, there wasn't a problem there. But then if a shopkeeper or if, like, a, a restaurant was, like, asking me, what do you want to, you know, what do you want to order? My, you know, Chinese w- or my Mandarin was not that fluent. And so I was immediately kind of brought back and, like, you know, you may think you're comfortable here. You may think that you finally found somewhere that you belonged but even that's not real. Just like in America, it's like you're always just kind of in between or stuck in such a unique way, I guess. Um, And I think like back when I was 10, I didn't have the language or the context to fully understand what it means to be part of the diaspora. And so for me, I was just frustrated because I went back to Taiwan. I was like, okay, finally, there was something weird about me being in America and being in a minority. Now everybody looks like me. I finally belong. And then this language gap and then like the more time I spent there like cultural gaps I was like damn I'm kind of back at square one I'm feeling like an outsider again but now in a different way yeah I have the same feelings as you regarding uh, going back to Taiwan but also I'll share this anecdote where I was hanging out with my cousin this was a few years, a few years ago and he, we were hanging out with one of his friends and he said oh this is my cousin he came back uh, uh, to Taiwan from, from America, and I, I noticed he used the ter- the word come back um, to describe me as a, you know, as an American coming, like, going back to Taiwan, and that kind of gave me this, even though I knew inside that, like, I'm not really fully Taiwanese, but still, uh, I s- felt grateful that he was willing to think of me as being part of uh as a taiwanese instead of like oh he's just this american uh who happens to be my cousin i have a i think we all okay i think we all have like a lot of you know feelings about our like home quote unquote homeland motherland fatherland like being here in like america or the western world um but for me It's a different kind of weird because I grew up in Southeast Asia and I came to the U.S. for school, essentially, even though like I was born in L.A. 
Um, I never spent any significant amount of time in America until college. And so like my mom's Filipino and I was in the Philippines until I was about seven. And then after that, you know, my mom got a new position and we moved to Saigon, like to Vietnam. And that's where I grew up. And so in many ways, like that's home for me. But it's weird because like my family no longer lives in Vietnam. Like my parents, while I was in college, you know, moved our family to, to Thailand. So they live in Bangkok right now. And so there's no, I have no family ties to this place that is very significant in my like socialization as a person. And so I'm like, there's no reason, quote unquote reason for me to go back to Saigon. Cause it's like, who would I visit? Right. I went to a school where everyone who I went to school with, like was from a different country. And so they're all scattered across the world, which is like a really great and like very privileged thing. I recognize that. But in terms of like a concept of home and tying it to a place, I'm kind of like, I love being back there, but there are no people there for me. And then I feel like kind of the opposite about the Philippines where there are like, like I don't really feel tied to the place, but I feel tied to the people that are there, which which is my family. Like I'll happily go and I'll see my family. I love being around them. But I have those feelings when I go into like public spaces in the Philippines where I'm not with my family, where I just like, you know, everyone knows that I'm Filipino, but I feel very much like a tourist where even if like I'm in Saigon and even if I have no, no people there for me anymore, I still feel the sense of familiarity where like I can move around in that space. And even if I, even though I'm not Vietnamese, even though I don't really have friends there anymore, my family's not there. I feel more comfortable there than I do in the Philippines. And like, I'm getting to a point where I feel more comfortable in America than I do in the Philippines, which is like weird. So Chris, like, um, given that Saigon is where you lived most of your life, um, like, do you speak Vietnamese or is that part of why you feel at home there? And do you speak like Tagalog or any other Filipino languages? So at this point in my life, I speak much more Tagalog slash Filipino than I do like on any other type of Asian language. Um, and the Vietnamese that I know is very much like very, very basic, you know, cause I was there as like essentially like a, a child. Right. So I'm not running around doing things by myself. Um, so it's, what's also like interesting too, is right after college, I moved to Thailand, right. I went to go see, live with my parents basically. But then I ended up getting a job and staying for much longer than I thought I would. And so now Bangkok also feels like home and it feels like home partly because my, my family is there. So there's like a very strong, like familial reason for me to be there and be tied to that place. But it's also a place where I built community because living there as an adult and working there and like doing things on my own, I got to know the city in this way that, you know, I never got to know Saigon because I was just a kid when I was there. And like my world was like my house school. And then like, you know, me sneaking out to downtown when I was in high school, like that's really all I knew. But like Bangkok, I feel like 
if you went to Bangkok with me, I could show you so many different neighborhoods, places to eat, things to do. You know, I'd have like a bunch of people to introduce you to. I could take you to my favorite bars. Like, like in my head, I'm like, that's my city. And like, I kind of feel that way or I'm starting to feel that way about Chicago too. Um, but it's interesting that it's taken me much longer to feel that way in Chicago than it ever took me to feel that way in Bangkok. And I know that's because like in Bangkok, I have this anchor of my family and this, um, like, like, yes, like, like Bangkok, Cebu and Saigon are all very different places, but they are all sprawling Southeast Asian cities and they have these similarities and of like the chaos in which they operate and also, you know, being large Southeast Asian cities, I look like whoever is in these cities, even though I'm not Thai or I'm not Vietnamese. So there's like a level of comfort in operating in that space that I don't have in America, which is predominantly white. Man, I should have, I went to Bangkok before I knew you. I should have, should have asked around. Where have I been all your life, Ashish? That's the question. Seriously. Uh, this is like interesting because um, I I spoke Hindi and Malayalam when I lived in India. And then when I left my parents and I moved to America when I was six, I forgot basically all the Indian languages that I knew. And uh, I think that, you know, like knowledge of a language is such a key cipher in terms of like how legible a place is to you and how at home you feel within it uh like it is very meaningful for me when i go back to india when i was in india this past like this past month uh to be in a place where like i looked like everybody else that my existence like my physical existence was not in any way like in question um but then i felt really isolated as well even in even in bombay which is very cosmopolitan because people recognize me as a, a member of a societal whole. And yet, you know, because of that, they'd speak to me in Hindi and I'd be unable to respond meaningfully. And then we'd always have these awkward conversations where they'd ask like, oh, where are you from? And I'd say like, I'm from Bombay, but I'm American. And they would say, oh, well, you still look Indian. And I was like, of course, I still look Indian. Like, what does does moving to America like make you white? What, what happens? But it was the first time that I had been back, and my I was really hyper conscious of my Americanness. I felt like it it clung to me like this disease or like this like weird facial mark or something. Like the moment that I opened my mouth <clears throat> or entered into conversations with people, I was marked as other in a really uncomfortable way. Um, and uh, this time was different because I was able to learn some Hindi before going back. So I was able to have like short conversations with people and that has helped a lot in like making India like make more sense to me. Um, what I really want to do one day is become fluent in both of the languages that my family speaks and go back and spend like a decent amount of time there. Mm. And I know we're like running along, but what you said about like when like this voice comes out of your mouth and how that changes things. What I found really interesting when I moved to Bangkok is like looking the way I do. Um, 
a lot of Thai people could tell that I'm mixed and would actually assume that I was like mixed Thai and like some, some, some something else and would ask me like in Thai, like, oh, are you like mixed? But um, a lot of like foreigners, for lack of a better term, like non-Thais um, couldn't see that, I guess. So like Thai, as, and so the reason that's significant is because Thai people thinking that I was mixed were like very cognizant of like, oh, well, she, her command of Thai may not be fluent, right? Or like she probably speaks another language. Whereas like foreigners would look at me, see Asian, see, think I'm Thai, and then assume that I couldn't speak English. And so there's like so much wrapped up in that, right? About how like Western men view Asian women in Asia. But what happened to me a lot the, when I first moved to Thailand was that I would get introduced to folks and they'd be like, oh, this is my friend, Chris. And then they'd be like, oh, hi. And then like continue having a conversation and not really do anything to include me in it, which again, like, I don't expect you to do that, but usually when you meet somebody new, like, and it's like clear that you're introducing someone new to a friend group, it's like people speak to you and they pay attention to you. They try to get to know you. And I would notice like a marked difference in the way that I was treated, especially by like the men in the group. Once I like, if I happened to open my mouth and give a comment on something and they heard this accent come out and then it would be like, Oh, like she's worthy of our time now because she's American or she's Westernized, which I thought was interesting. Um, and clearly like it gave me some insight into like how Westerners treat Asian women in Asia. That is really interesting. Um, yeah, I had a somewhat similar experience going back actually, because uh, I mean, obviously in, in, in very different ways because I am a man and I have that privilege, but um, India obviously is crawling with white tourists. Um, and even though uh, I would say like, even just, even independent of my accent, I think that there are aspects to the way that I dress and my physicality that probably mark me as other enough that Indians can probably pick up on my otherness, especially when I was in areas with tourists. Like a lot of them would just assume that I was a tourist, even if I looked Indian. Um, but of course, like even, even other Americans were actually often incapable of making that distinction. So uh, I was privy to these really weird experiences where like groups of white Americans would be walking around talking about India and Indians as if I was invisible and as if Indians don't already speak English. Um, and I could just tell um, even just at the level of how they were, you know, just their body language and, you know, simple, basically just, just the gaze, honestly that to them I was a part of the scenery. I wasn't really a human that had thoughts and could react to what they were saying intelligently. Um, and it was a really weird and uncanny experience to simultaneously like be a part of a, like be a part of someone's society and not be given that recognition right away. Um, because I guess in a sense, it made me conscious of the otherness that I already occupy within American society. And then it also sort of gave me a ticket into, uh, I got a limited view of what it is to actually 
be Indian without, a, you know, an American passport or a viewpoint in American society and be considered um, almost not worthy of being recognized as on the same intellectual plane. Right. And I think about, like, all these stories that we shared and how, you know, so many of us carry this baggage and, like, past traumas and we're just all trying to grapple with this. And I think that points to how important, like, creating, you know, these uh, specific diaspora communities where we can kind of work it out is. Um, or even just, like, something like a casual conversation like this podcast where we can just share this story. I think there's um, a lot of power in that. But yeah, on that note, I think we can wrap it up. Um, Thank you so much for coming on this podcast. Tim, Ashish, Chris, um, special shout out to Bing for kind of starting this podcast, this whole initiative. Um, Bing who may or may not have been whacked by Alex. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Um, we'll find out next episode on Afternoon Tea. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, we usually end it with uh, some sort of tea pun, but I don't know if we've chosen one yet. Oh, I've got one, actually. All right, go for it. So Bing's last one was stay for an oolong time. But, I mean, if you're if you're busy, you don't have that much time. You can just stay for a psalm time. There you go. And that's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs>